0: Welcome to The Canopy, a podcast on the environmental humanities and all of its branches. This pod is brought to you by the Penn Program in Environmental Humanities, coming to you from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, a city where bad things happen. I'm Bethany Wiggin, and I'm the program's faculty director. I'm Angela Ferranda.
1: I'm Mia DeFanza. Together, we're the program's coordinators. And The Canopy's managing editors.
0: Now it's time to get climbing. It's a treat to welcome you to this episode of The Canopy about stories of unnatural natural disasters, including superstorms, and of the increasingly everyday disasters of ongoing climate change, like flooded basements or high school buildings too hot for learning. We're bringing you two segments in this episode, and you'll hear lively student voices and learn from academic researchers and community partners who are vitally important to the socially engaged work we make at the Program in Environmental Humanities. In the first, University of Pennsylvania Environmental Humanities minor and graduating senior, Eliza Sandler talks with University of Toronto researcher, Alexandra Rahr, about how academic institutions can work for climate and environmental justice. Their conversation is the first in a series of four spotlights on participants in the ongoing UPenn, Oxford University and U of Toronto cluster designed to train the next generation of environmental humanities leaders. You can learn more about the cluster on our website. The second segment features two dynamic women who work with the advocacy organization Interfaith, Power, and Light in the Chesapeake Bay chapter. I spoke with them soon after leading a climate storytelling workshop for their members. It took place as part of the participatory research project here at PPEH called My Climate Story. And in our coming episodes, you'll hear more from the many community leaders, teachers, and students already involved in it. And especially from the high school teachers, our climate champions, whose classrooms we will be supporting over the next 12 months to research, document, and share communities' climate stories. In this segment, Katie Ruth and her student, Marie Salazar, talk about why they wanted to host a climate storytelling workshop and what they and their organization gained from it. It's great to have you with us up here in the canopy. Thanks for listening on.
2: Hi, my name is Eliza Sandler. I am a senior at the University of Pennsylvania, minoring in environmental humanities. Today I am joined by Professor Alexander Rahr. Riesel Hyde, Lecturer in American Studies at the University of Toronto's Center for the Study of the United States. Today, we will be talking about the role of academia and academic research in environmental and climate justice. Hi, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, Eliza,
1: thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here with you.
2: Could you tell me a bit about who you are? What do you particularly research and where do you see environmental humanities fitting in with your work? So my own research
1: is on narratives of natural disaster. So I'm really interested in what happens when the winds rise and the storm surge and the earth parches and what happens in those moments of extremity, because moments of extremity are really revealing And the way we talk about them and imagine them is especially revealing. So in moments of that kind of crisis, people write about it and they write newspaper accounts of it. They write songs about it. They make plays about it. So as a scholar, that's an archive that's deep and ancient and constantly being renewed.
2: How do you think the structure and the form of the disaster narrative kind of relates to and could perpetuate potentially environmental justice or injustice?
1: You know, natural disaster itself as a term is an incredibly concise disaster narrative. So it's actually just two words. It's this term that's kind of like cultural wallpaper. We don't necessarily think about it or think about what it means, but it's doing an enormous amount of work. So natural disaster implies, first of all, that disaster is natural that it is located in the natural world. What that suggests is that there's nothing we can do about it. We are at the mercy as people who live on this planet of tsunami and hurricane and cyclone. But in fact, as scholars have shown, really for a long time now, in sort of the words of of Ted Steinberg, a disaster sociologist, there's nothing natural about natural disaster. And one other way to think about how disaster is not natural is to think about something like Hurricane Katrina. The reason that the disaster happened, the reason that we have those images of people dying and dead in the streets, flooded streets of New Orleans, of people crowded into the Superdome seeking that refuge of last resort. That happened because that levy system wasn't maintained. Right? There wasn't enough funding to keep the city safe. But there are other reasons as well. And there's all kinds of tall reed and swamp grass that naturally grows along the edge of the coast. One of the things that's really important about it is that in a storm, when all that water rushes in from the storm surge, that reed grass, all of that growth slows the storm surge. But in New Orleans, they had torn out a lot of that tall grass in order to accommodate casino river boats and also to accommodate the enormous petro industry which exists in the Gulf. And in making those economic decisions, Louisiana made the city of New Orleans radically vulnerable, right? It took away a level of protection. We've come to realize that natural disaster doesn't make precarity. It tears away the veil and it reveals the precarity that was already there. It reveals to us how many citizens are already vulnerable and are living at the edge of survivance. And one of the things that happened in Hurricane Katrina, because it hit at the end of the month when people who were receiving social assistance were at the end of that month's check. So there was basically no money left. It's just the very last few days of the month. Those people didn't have any money to get out of town when they knew the storm was coming. So there are all kinds of reasons why poor and racialized New Orleanians were disproportionately represented in the disaster of Hurricane Katrina, right? Because we know that poverty is institutional, that race is institutionalized, and that it creates these kinds of inequities that make it impossible or really difficult for people to leave.
2: This really makes me think about the importance of the temporal form of what a narrative commonly is and how this cannot necessarily map directly onto discussions around disasters. In your perspective, where does the disaster narrative end? So one of
1: the things that we know about disaster is that it's a spectacle. It's spectacular. So too much water in the wrong place, right? In the streets of New Orleans, in the streets of lower Manhattan, when Hurricane Sandy hit the Northeast. Or it's not enough. Right. It's drought in the Dust Bowl and parched, parched land or California drought, um, as we've seen in the last few years. But it's visually arresting. Right. It's it creates a kind of sublime. And one of the problems with disaster narrative is that the narrative forms we have. If we think you're about something like a newspaper article or something like a novel right? The conventional form is that you have, you get attached to a particular character. So there's a long buildup, and then there's a peak of action and drama. And then there's this quick, quick resolution, and then it ends. And as Amitav Ghosh, the novelist and social critic writes in his book about climate change narratives, The Great Derangement, Ghosh points out that one of the reasons that there hasn't been many great climate change novels, or indeed many climate change novels at all, is that we don't have the narrative forms to tell that story because climate change is long and it's extended. The actual chronology of disaster is incredibly long. It spins out for not just days or weeks or months, but for years and for decades afterwards. And there are parts of the Lower Ninth Ward, one of the neighborhoods or districts of New Orleans that are so badly damaged that population levels still have not returned. And Hurricane Katrina was 2005. The other thing to remember about that, just to keep in mind about how natural disasters are a window into environmental injustice, is that more white residents have returned to New Orleans than Black. So New Orleans is now a
2: less Black city than it was I think this sheds a lot of light on how we might go about enacting environmental justice. In what ways do you find or feel that your work in research is in the pursuit of environmental and climate justice?
1: One of the things that thinking about natural disaster critically does is help us to see all the ways in which the institutions and systems that have created our built environment are not neutral that they create climates that we all live in, in which some people, some citizens are more exposed and more vulnerable than others, in which some citizens and some subjects experience violence, institutional and climate and environmental violence in ways that other citizens are protected from. There's a reason why so many black and brown new orleanians suffered were displaced and died in hurricane katrina than white new orleanians it's not accidental and if we pay attention to how that happened if we actually dig in and track the ways that we make disasters we don't just experience disasters then we can start mitigating them we can start protecting citizens, and undoing some of the systems we have built to sacrifice some of our citizens in order to protect others.
2: Zooming out a bit and looking at, you know, academia and universities as institutions, what do you think the pursuit of environmental and climate justice looks like at the University of Toronto or other universities? And what is the institution's responsibility?
1: One of the things that I think not just the University of Toronto, definitely U of T, but other universities as well need to commit to is elevating, funding, and supporting the work of the many individual faculty members, staff members, and students who are committed to and already doing the work of climate justice. But there is no commitment yet at the institutional level to climate justice, sustainability initiatives, and to back that up with funding, with staff support, with administrative support, with PR support, right? There are all kinds of ways that the university could elevate climate justice to be part of its most important priorities. So this work is already being done by our U of T students, faculty, and staff. And I would love to see the university match that commitment with a commitment of its own to environmental justice.
2: Great. Thank you so much for your time.
3: I've never experienced an event where the community was able to come together and kind of just share their own personal stories like that. I think it was a great way for people to realize that climate not only is about science or like what you read on the news. It's like the person next to you could be affected by something. And it's not just something that is so far outreached or something that is happening somewhere far away. It's like something that's happening in our communities, in people's backyards, and that is affecting people every day.
0: Such a pleasure to
3: talk today with you, Katie Ruth, and you, Maria
0: Salazar. Would you introduce yourselves, please? Sure, so I'm Katie Ruth.
4: I am the outreach coordinator with an organization called Interfaith Partners for the Chesapeake. We work with congregations and people of faith across um, the Chesapeake watershed and really glad to be here in conversation with you today.
3: Yes, my name is Maria Salazar and I am an intern for the uh, Interfaith Partners for the Chesapeake. So I am with the same organization as Katie and yeah, I just work with community outreach, so I am mainly in charge of making sure that. People hear our message and hear what our organization is doing. And I am studying at Franklin Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It is a small liberal arts college, and I am majoring in government and minoring in Spanish.
4: So uh, I first heard Dr. Bethany speak at an event last year, and she just came with so much passion and energy and shared about the My Climate Story project. And I immediately was like, I need to have her come and speak to our event. So we at Interfaith Partners for the Chesapeake, we work with congregations who are often held together by these sacred stories, right? Whether those are from religious traditions or even their own origin stories of how their community came to be in a certain location. And so it felt like a really natural fit to explore climate through the lens of storytelling.
3: I think it was a great experience, especially for me coming from such a large state of California. I've never experienced an event where the community was able to come together and kind of just share their own personal stories like that. I think it was a great way for people to realize that climate not only is about science or like what you read on the news, it's like the person next to you could be affected by something and it's not just something that is so far outreached or something that is happening somewhere far away. It's like something that's happening in our communities, in people's backyards, and that is affecting people every day. So I think this was a great opportunity just to come together and hear from other people and hear how they're being affected.
0: I was so excited to be invited. It was really such an honor. I did share a little bit of a chuckle with my family when I came home from Lancaster back to Philadelphia on Sunday after our workshop, I said, You'll never believe where I gave a lecture today. It was from a pulpit. And they, my kids in particular, thought that was really funny and asked, you know, well, what was it like? Can you share for our listeners the actual setting of where the workshop happened and a little bit about the communities who were there, some in person and, of course, some online?
4: Sure. So, yeah, it is quite a unique event that we pulled together. So, As an organization, we often work with congregational. That's how we kind of do our organizing is on a congregational basis. So when we were putting this event together, we kind of sent out our invitations to congregations. And then we hosted the event at Grandview Church in Lancaster, which is one of our partner congregations in the area. Um, So we had a whole live stream system set up so that we could stream the event to all of our partner congregations across the Chesapeake watershed. So it was quite a a unique event in a couple of different ways from like the virtual tech side of things through to like the in-person gathering. So we had representatives come from different congregations throughout the region, um, including Christian traditions and Islamic traditions and Jewish traditions and some of our other um, religious partners. So quite a large array of different people and backgrounds. And then before Dr. Bethany spoke, we also had a local youth activist come
0: and speak to us from the local Sunrise Movement. So that was really fun as well. Thank you so much. I was just so moved by the youth energy in the room, including yours too, Maria. I mean, just really um, powerful stories and powerful commitments about the climate work that many of your members are are doing now. It was really fun to talk with you.
4: I told someone on Sunday that the event was kind of like an experiment, obviously there's a lot of work that goes into it, right? But also just like if we think about things as a big experiment in our humanness and our humanity, it's great. It's all fine. <laughs>
0: Well, especially in this era of climate change, like quite honestly, half of the time we have to make it up as we go and learning how to improvise with grace, with generosity, but also with integrity and rigor. I mean, that's where we are right now, right?
2: After having spent what is two years now separated from each other, what was it like to sit with people and witness their stories? What I noticed
4: as I was walking around to the different discussion groups was less about like the content of what was being shared, but like the connection that I was witnessing happening in real time as people started to hear each other and understand each other um, and share their stories with each other. There was like this camaraderie that got built that was really beautiful to watch, both in the sharing of stories and the dreaming of what a different kind of future could be.
3: Yeah, and kind of adding on to what Katie said, there was definitely that relationship building in the small groups portion. I definitely know that being face-to-face is so much more different than being on Zoom. I feel like there's this aspect that you cannot get on Zoom that you can get from having face-to-face conversations. And I think being together in those small groups and just hearing everybody else's stories really brought like a sense of not only community, but also of like making people realize that this is a real issue. Um, So I know people were sharing their stories from like something super small, like I'm scared of having my kids to go out because there's so many mosquitoes in the area now. And so I, like, I don't know what to do because I want them to go outside and play, but at the same time, I'm scared of their help. And like stories ranging from that to like more severe ones, like, oh, I had to sell my home due to the flooding that was happening in my area. So I think also having the respect that each story is valuable and each story has their own lesson to share, I think was also important for us. And yeah, it, it, we even got emotional. Like, I feel like I even got teary-eyed at, at some point. So it's like that human emotion that we tend to share in like those group communities. I think that that's something that really stood out to me. And being able to hear people from all different ages as well, as as Dr. Bethany mentioned, um, there was young people and older people and people from all different communities that are able to come and kind of hear a story that they probably would not have heard and not for this event. So I think that's an amazing aspect of this.
0: You, Katie, are one of the very first people who have worked with us to organize an in-person workshop. I thought it went really well. Could you share some thoughts that you might give to other organizers? Just sort of like, okay, here's the experiment that we did. Here's what we learned. Here's some tips for other Uh, organizations who might like to offer a My Climate workshop, you know, in partnership with the program in environmental humanities?
4: Yeah, well, my first thing would be to say, do it. Absolutely do it. It was a fantastic experience and one that I would do again. So I would certainly recommend the partnership building for sure. I think one of the most important things that I learned, and this is something that I think I brought with me before the My Climate Story workshop, but having like some guides for conversation can be a really helpful way to start the conversation. So in our facilitator guide for the workshop, I provided just a short list of like some different um, guides for conversation where like, okay, we commit to using inclusive language when we talk to each other and respecting each other's shared experiences or the differences from the places that we come. So having some kind of group commitment to the way we're going to approach storytelling is one of the things that I got feedback from facilitators was really helpful as we started the sessions together. Making sure that you just check in whatever your facilitators are gonna be um, so that you can provide them with the tools and the resources that they need so they feel supported to have those conversations, especially if like emotions arise you know, you want to have make them feel equipped to deal with those kind of things. So that's really important. And then I think being intentional about who's in the room, right? So for our particular event, we really wanted to focus and empower youth voices. And we were also really intentional about trying to make it an intergenerational event. So as I was setting up the discussion groups based on who was in the room, I really tried hard to create groups where there was some of that intergenerationality happening so that we could have conversations that span generations together. So those were some of the things that I was thinking about that might be helpful for others as they look to facilitate their own. But I think this is the first maybe like formalized conversation that I got to witness, which was, it has a different, the informal conversations are important, right? Um, The conversations we have with our neighbors and our friends, um, those are really important. But also having time where we come together to very intentionally explore themes or share our own stories feels really important and powerful.
3: Yeah, I think for me personally, same as Katie, I've never really had like a formal group discussion around climate. I think most of the discussions that I've had around climate change have been through personal experiences. So in in my church, there's a lot of people that um, migrated from Mexico because there wasn't enough water in their land to be able to sow their crops. So I think it's just personal experiences is what we've been discussing. But having like a formal group meeting where people can share their different stories. I think I've never, never had that experience before. And I think this, this, it came very natural in a way where people were just being able to bring their previous experiences and then bring it to the table. And then everybody was able to kind of take their own piece from the table. Like I kind of see like a dinner table, everybody like a potluck, everybody brings their own dish to the table. And so everybody just kind of takes a piece and just goes with what they've learned.
0: I love that you think about it in terms of food and sharing when we created our workbook with these lessons about how to tell your climate story or other forms of of climate stories we actually really wrote that in terms of recipes like we thought about food and sharing all the time and part of that i think is that there's such pleasure in sharing food and that helped us think about the power of sharing stories as well and we also thought well some people are gonna say, I don't know how I don't have a climate story. I don't know I'm I'm not an author. I don't know how a story. Much like people might say, I'm not a chef. I'm like, Well, but you do cook. And you can follow a recipe. So, we really wanted people to understand that they, in and of themselves, already have all the ingredients that they need to follow a recipe to produce a simple climate story. And if they then want to, you know, kind of embroider on the story or make it more artistic or pair it with multimedia um, materials, they absolutely can do that. But that what they already had was enough in order to have a story. I wondered if you would be willing to share your climate story with us.
3: Yes, yes. Um, I'm from California, uh, the southern part of California. So I'm from Hawthorne, which is around 10 minutes from the airport. So you might imagine there's a lot of pollution. The towns around me, there were mostly factories. So driving to school every day, you would see big smokes of pollution just rising. And I think one of the major issues in California is definitely droughts. So we get a lot of droughts and wildfires. So I think water and its scarcity was something that was very important to us. I remember elementary school, we would have like PowerPoints and presentations on how we as children could preserve the water in the future. So I think around my climate story, there's a lot of like guilt and kind of a struggle of having to kind of overcome these issues. And so a lot of the responsibilities are placed on the younger generations. So I think in high school, middle school, elementary school, I remember through all of my years of education, I've been taught that we made these actions, but you're in charge of solving them. So I think anything related to climate or environmental issues, we would have kind of the responsibility, like it's our problem to come up with a solution and to make sure that we find a way to resolve the effects of actions of previous generations. So I think my around my climate story, there's a lot of, not exactly guilt, but responsibility and kind of the stress that I think many people often feel of like, things are kind of starting to get worse. You know, what what can we do to kind of make sure that our future generations as well are not experiencing the same things that we are, so. Like, where would you like to see your climate story go from here? Or what would you like it to do if it has a job? Or if it is just existing in the world, where would you like to see it go next? I think just making sure that people are able to hear it. I don't know. I feel like many times people are very skeptical of climate change and they're just like, it's just not happening at all. And I think that's very that just disregards everybody else's climate stories and everybody else's stories that are happening everywhere all around the world. And I think people that are just not willing to I don't know accept that that is happening just being able to hear someone and someone that's like especially a young person that's being affected by climate change i think just being able to to spread that story and being able to get as many people to hear about it i'm not very sure how that would happen like the logistics of it but i know that you know just sharing it out to the world in any way possible would be great